0: Hi, you're listening to New Books in History. I'm your host, Dexter Fergie, a PhD student at Northwestern University. Today I'm speaking with Jay Sexton, the Kinder Institute Chair in Constitutional Democracy and Professor of History at the University of Missouri. And we'll be discussing his new book called A Nation Forged by Crisis, A New American History. It was published just last year by Basic Books. A prominent myth in The American Nationalist Imaginary is that the country has been on a continued path of progress since its founding, that its history is the self-realization of the principles of liberty that were laid out by the founding fathers. Jay Sexton says this is wrong. The country has been made by crises, and, he writes, contingent moments in which the existence of the nation was up for grabs, whether 1776, the Civil War, or the Great Depression and World Wars of the first half of the 20th century. Sexton chronicles these crises and their influence over the nation's demography, economy, and geopolitical power. And he he packs this new history of the Republic in under 200 pages, a remarkable feat. I hope you enjoy our conversation. I'm speaking with Jay Sexton about his new book, A Nation Forged by Crisis. Welcome to the show, Jay.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: So we always begin our show with the question, how did you become a historian?
1: Oh, well, I think the same way um, history yeah. unfolds for for nations, just through a series of of contingent unexpected events. You know, I never set out <laughs> to be a, a historian. And, um, you know, I always enjoyed the study of the past. That, that's always been a, a constant. But um, one thing led to another. Um, uh, I didn't actually start majoring in, in history in uh, my undergraduate days at the University of Kansas. I went through about uh, half a dozen majors, as I suspect many, many of the people listening have probably done. Uh, but then settled on uh, history and English and then uh, went to grad school in, in England. I was just going to be there for two years on a fellowship and was going to come back. Um, but the next thing I know, it was almost 20 years later and I had a, a PhD in history and and was teaching over there. So you gotta, you gotta be careful when you go abroad or else you'll get stuck there sometimes.
0: That's, that's, uh, um, some very wise words. Um, so what led you to write a book about crisis?
1: Well, I mean, it, I'd, I'd lie if I'd say in part, it wasn't um, conditioned by the uh, recent events. Um, you know, I was still in Britain um, in the unexpected uh, Brexit vote in uh, June of 2016, uh, moved a couple of weeks after that back to uh, my native Midwest, and so was here in time for the um, equally unexpected presidential election. And then all of the uh, the turmoil that, that followed from those events, and, and not just the turmoil in our political system but also I think uh, within our markets or financial markets and within our, our cultures more generally. Mm. So that was a big push for this. But um, the, the, the book is, is based upon how I had taught uh, US history to the British students um, all those years. And I, I'd always been one that emphasized um, contingency and, and sharp breaks, rupture points, um, rather than continuity. In the, in the American past. So uh, I had something, uh, a foundation there, but I think it was, uh, the book was very much the product of, of recent events.
0: Mm. So before we get into the book itself, um, I wanna ask you a question about writing. So this book and your last book on the Monroe Doctrine are by historian standards, very short. Uh, and as someone who's in the death throes of studying for you know, my comprehensive exams right now, um, that concision is something I, I greatly appreciate, um, and I'm just wondering, like, what motivates you to write concisely, um, and what are some of the challenges that um, that concision um, uh, poses? No,
1: oh, it, it's a it's a great it's a great question, and it was deliberate. It, it wasn't as if I only had 199 uh, uh, pages of, of things to say. It was a, a target <laughs> to meet in this book, and I beat it by one page to go under. 200. But I mean, hey, look, I, I think that, you know, as, as times change, as technologies change, as the accessibility of information changes, and as pedagogies of how we teach change, um, you know, how we write our, our history books also auto evolve. And at a time in which information is at our fingertips, um, it becomes less important to give the reader. The kind of overwhelming detailed um substantiation of an argument and it becomes more important to um, highlight the the argument itself so that that was the sort of motive you you asked about uh, challenges i mean there's just tons of challenges in trying to write a a shorter book and and the biggest one is making those decisions about what's going to get left on the on the cutting room floor and 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 knowing that uh, as an author, as a historian, in our profession, a collaborative profession, that you do um, open yourself up to criticism to someone say, well, what about this or that mm-hmm. or the other? You, you didn't talk enough about this thing. How could you not have done that? And um, and and I think that instead of um, in, instead of fearing that, I came to embrace it and say, well, you know, in many ways. What we include in our books is a statement of what we think uh, at this point in time is is worth emphasizing, and i I welcome and invite those discussions about what what might have been in there or 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 what was in there too much and and that's at the the heart of what we're doing in this in this new age of of um, of vast amounts of information at our fingertips.
0: -hmm yeah, i mean i I think it's a really good thing about uh, your writing uh and of course it does leave you vulnerable to uh yeah the uh, you know all of the omission um, uh, criticisms um but i think it's a great thing to be able to sit down with a book in a single sitting and get through it yeah. and uh, and really deal with um yeah the argument itself
1: no that's right and and mind you it, j- just if you just because you write a big fat book d- does not um mitigate uh, the, the 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 criticism of what's in there versus what's not in there I mean think of uh, Lapores think of Lapores book um which I I think there's a lot to be said yes. for it I like the book actually it's a very different take on um American history than than, than i have in this one but it's it's fantastic but a lot of the criticism has been you know in such a long book why didn't you talk more about um indigenous peoples or why didn't you do more on this that or the other so that's just going to be there no matter what so you might as well save the reader uh, save the reader some time and and uh the the energy spent lugging around a big book that that's what i always think
0: <laughs> I, I think that's a uh, yeah really good case for uh smaller books so let's get into the book itself. So uh, you argue that, and you've already kind of touched on this, you argue that contingent and unexpected crises um, have shaped the United States. And so just in broad strokes, um, what has been the role of crisis in American history?
1: I mean, the role of crisis has been um, the role of of creative destruction, of, um, you know, p- periods of, of sudden immense uh, growth leading to Um, unexpected volatility change, oftentimes, of course, coinciding with with warfare and international conflict, geopolitical reconfiguration. All of the moments that I write about in the book that I focus on are periods of, of warfare when the mobilization of resources and in quick order becomes the 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 great imperative of the day. And what I argue about creative destruction in in kind of national terms is that it's in these moments that so many of the of the institutions, um, the practices, the relationships, even the ideas that uh, make the United States the country that we know today um, are, are, are created. So one could take a very different perspective, and we go back to Lepore, who we mentioned earlier, and think about um, American history as the kind of incremental um, unfolding drama of the uh, attempt of the diverse inhabitants of the United States to uh, claim the rights that they were promised in 1776. And if you take that kind of an approach, I think that you see more gradual change over time. Uh, It's not necessarily linear, but it is moving in a more consistent direction. Um, and, and what I try to point out in the book is that if we, if we change our frame of reference from looking at um, political rights and vocabularies and traditions, if we change it from that to looking at the nation as a configuration of power, a configuration of power forged by geopolitical pressures, um, we see these moments in which there's sudden acute changes in the nature of the nation itself so that that's what i'm trying to get at here by zooming in on on crisis moments all of which of course will be familiar to the readers i look at the age of the revolution uh civil war and then the the great protracted crisis of the mid-20th century from the um, uh, great depression of the 1930s through the the second world war Mm mm-hmm
0: and so let 's talk about some of those crises um, and so uh, let's let 's deal first with the American Revolution. Um, you emphasized that um, seventeen seventy six was less a revolution and more a civil war. Um, can you explain why that 's the case
1: well it's a it 's a civil war in a in a double sense isn 't it it 's a civil war in the sense that Um, The inhabitants of the 13 colonies that rebel, and remember there's 20-some-odd British colonies um, in the Atlantic system and only some of them rebel, but the inhabitants of those colonies um, think of themselves as Britons, as British, as Englishmen, Um, and their ideas are framed in relation to, to English concepts of of liberty and and political order and um in material terms they're becoming um ever more linked to the um uh, markets and and economy of the of the mother nation across the sea so what we're dealing with is a a a a broad British community that is unraveling in 1776. That's the first regard in which it's a civil war. The second one is when you dive uh, down within the 13 colonies themselves, and of course uh loyalism which um sh- shouldn't come as a shock to anyone but it's it's persistently downplayed in the historiography that loyalism is a is a powerful phenomenon it is a minority phenomenon within the within the colonies but um it is a, a, a numerically strong minority you know up to a third a quarter 20% depending on on when and and where you look uh but the 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 civil war unfolds within the colonies as well as within the broader uh, British empire and I, and i think to understand its course we have to understand um how those um political conflicts within a broader anglo community uh, play out mm-hmm.
0: And so, so something else um, that you deal with in relation to, um, yeah, the, you know, the 1776 revolution slash civil war um, is uh, your interpretation of the declaration of independence. And it's something that you begin the, the book with. Um, and I thought this was so fascinating. So you write the, um, you know, we all remember um, the second paragraph. So, you know, all men are created equal. Um, but that is actually not what was most important to the founders. Uh, and so, can you share with listeners um, your thoughts on um, what was more significant for them, and um, how it relates to um, this story about crisis that you're telling?
1: No, that, that that's right. I mean, the the iconic, well remembered line about all men created equal um, is, is certainly important. Don't get me wrong, and it becomes, I think, more important um, over time, um, including right up to the present. I mean, in many ways. It's not surprising that that's the bit of the declaration that um that students and and the public today are most interested in, but uh, the Declaration of Independence is much more than a articulation of of timeless ideals. It is a a political, diplomatic constitutional document that has a very specific purpose, and the purpose is to uh, proclaim to the civilized world as the, as the founders would have conceived it to, to proclaim to the, to the European powers in particular, that the United States was a, a stable, a viable polity, that it, it may not have had the, the, the long running institutions that you might see in the old world, but it was a, a recognizable political form that demanded um, the respect of foreign observers and powers. And of course, one of the big audiences for the Declaration was France. It was an attempt to get uh, French support and the French alliance, which ultimately, of course, will be achieved uh, a year and a half uh, down down the road. So this is a, a, a an an innovative document of of statecraft and diplomacy. And the, the last thing I would say about it, and something that I um, would argue not only about the Declaration of Independence, but about so many of the acts of US statecraft in the early period in the 19th century, is that the um, internal um, nation building uh, objectives are entwined with the diplomatic geopolitical ones. So in this case, the creation of union between the 13 colonies was um, uh, not just an end in itself, but it was a means to an end of achieving of diplomatic recognition and French support. So from the very beginning, the American National Experiment was not only about uh, the pursuit of important ideals of of equality, but it was also about how could you build a nation in a volatile and oftentimes hostile geopolitical order. And those two things were um, uh, joined at the hip in 1776. And one can trace that uh, theme right through uh, into the 20th century.
0: Mm. So let's move on to the 19th century. Uh, and so um, you you argue that the, the timing of the U.S. Civil War in the 1860s uh, can be explained by the changes that the country was undergoing in the previous decade and a half. So things like um, you know there was a a lack of a foreign threat which is kind of an interesting source of civil war uh, and but then also um the um the explosive increase in immigration um so can you say something about how this uh you know this this crisis sort of like unfolds
1: yeah i mean what what we see in the in the mid 19th century is a a sudden shift in the position of the united states within um, the broader geopolitical order. Um, of course, it should be said from the outset that this isn't unique to the United States. I mean, the mid 19th century is really the beginning point of the processes which we might call a globalization, um, even in that period, you know, steam power, uh, telegraphy, new forms of, of imperial rule and so forth. So the world is changing and starting to change um, even faster than it had been Um, in the in the earlier period and nowhere is it changing faster than in the united states which is so um, integrated into not only the uh, the atlantic economic order but really into this emerging global economic order so one of the things i want to do in that chapter about the origins of the civil war is say absolutely you betcha the civil war is about slavery um that is the, the, the crux of the matter. That is the debate. But that debate had been around. It had been around for a long time. Um, but the national institutions of the United States had found a way to contain it. Um, all of a sudden, after 1848, uh, the debate can't be contained. And so what I look at is how these sharp shifts in America's international position um, erode the very institutions that had been able to keep the um, sections um, divided by slavery uh, united and together. And as you say, the things that I uh, look at are um, the creation of the Continental Empire, uh, the war of conquest against Mexico, and now all of a sudden you have a situation in which Um, The United States has demonstrated its power. Uh, The the European powers and the the Mexicans have acquiesced um, or been subdued, subjugated. They have to accept America's continental imperium. The indigenous peoples, who of course play a key role in the Mexican War, um, but a key role that facilitates American expansion rather than thwarts or inhibits it. Um, in the case of the Comanche. So all of a sudden, the the territorial domain in which this slavery question is unfolding has been um, remarkably expanded. And then at the same time, you have this sharp, sudden increase in immigration uh, to which you referred to. And it's one of the little uh, facts in the book that, um, most people don't know, but they should. But the the decade that witnessed the largest proportionate increase in the population that was foreign born, or in other words, the largest wave of immigration in a single decade uh, in U.S. history, uh, proportionate to the population, occurs in, between 1845 and, and 54 because of those sudden external shocks of the uh, Irish potato famine and the The failed revolutions in continental europe in 1848 so you have a a sharp demographic change which places all kinds of pressures on the political institutions and indeed the party system which is already struggling to contain and deal with the slavery question so i talk about the demise of the second-party system as being something that's central to the coming of the Civil War. Slavery is at the heart of it, but um, the the change in immigration patterns is a real contributing factor. So I guess, in short, there's a long-winded answer. What I'm trying to do there is show how the great internal conflict in U.S. history um, was entangled within uh, shifts in how the nation related uh, to, to foreign countries, peoples, and markets.
0: Mm-hmm um and so yeah thinking more about um sort of the uh the origins of the uh the civil war in the 1860s is um i was wondering if we could talk a little bit about about the confederacy um and so you uh you know you you argue that the uh us doesn't have a shared sense of um uh foreign threat in this period in the you know like the um 1840s and 50s um but the South, the slaveholding South, does feel um, some foreign threat, and that threat is um, uh, abolition. Um, and so you see abolition in the Western Hemisphere, and um, you know in different parts of the British Empire and, um, and elsewhere. Uh, and so they see, uh, you know, like the writing on the wall, so to speak. Um, and so you know, the, the, the Confederacy is like this uh, this other polity that emerges um, from uh, from this crisis. Can you just say something ab- about that? How that fits in with um, the yeah the, the broader national crisis?
1: Yeah, I mean it's normally not included in the kind of the timeline of the the greatest hits uh that when you run up to the the run up to the Civil War and and you start with the Missouri Compromise right and maybe the the Gag Order of the 1830s and then you get to the uh Texas question and the Wilmot Proviso, Kansas-Nebraska, Dred Scott, so on. Um it's not normally included in that but it should and that's the the 1833 British Emancipation Act, which uh, begins the the process of of abolition within the British West Indies. And this is just a a pivotal uh, event for uh, recalibration of threat among the planter class in the U.S. South. Um, All of a sudden, uh, Great Britain, the most powerful um, empire on the globe, is throwing its weight not only behind the abolition of the slave trade, which of course it had been for uh, several decades, but now against slavery itself, and I think to understand that that heightened sense of threat that you see within the the the, the, the political class of the South in the 1850s, uh, you have to you have to take on board um, Britain's turn and embrace of abolition. Uh, the the external the internal stories are of course entwined, they're entangled, they're inseparable, um, which is one of the points. Um, I try to make throughout the book, but in this case, the, the fear is that uh, British abolitionists um, have a sort of proxy power um, within the union, and that proxy power um, are the abolitionists, the anti-slavery activists, and uh, most uh, significantly, of course, the, the African-Americans, the African-American abolitionists, who play such an important role in the Atlantic anti-slavery movement. One thinks of Frederick Douglass being an Atlantic figure, not just an American figure, thanks to his um, uh, celebrity tours of Great Britain in the 1840s and then again um, in the 1850s. So Southerners see an alignment, um, an emerging anti-slavery consensus among Britain and um and yankees and and once you get the formation of the republican party in the 1850s this becomes quite an ominous threat i would just say one more thing about this um, and that is you see a kind of parallel development within the uh the, within the north so um in the north there's a fear that their their great ideological threats um have merged I- at home and abroad and it's taking the form of a of an aristocratic, um, anti-republican um, political elite that's conservative, and so so many of the Republicans in the 1850s, when they when they describe the slaveholding South, the planter class, the slave power, as they call it, um, they see it as being more like the uh, aristocratic um, powers of the old world um, than as uh, part of uh, uh, the kind of Republican American experiment. So the the key development is how the uh, the two sections come to see one another in the 1850s um, as personifying or embodying the worst of the the old world powers in the British Empire in particular.
0: Mm. So I kind of want to look at uh, the, like we've we've been talking about sort of the the, um, the, the the prehistory to the Civil War I want to talk about the Civil War itself um, and so uh, you're doing uh, a, a really great job um, looking at the uh, the union's mobilization efforts and you frame it as nation building mm. um, you know like in uh, you, you write that in 1861 there was uh, you know there was no banking system there wasn't even a national currency and uh, and so you know like to, to fight the fight the war the Union actually had to sort of integrate um the country can you talk about um uh this angle on mobile uh, the union's mobilization
1: yeah i mean the the you know you can't crush secession and this powerful slaveholder rebellion without um without integrating and bringing together um the sources of power within the union um, so the the Civil War, I mean what's formative about this crisis is uh, the consolidation and integration of power um, in the north. Uh, I think that's the the key headline story. Um, one of the things I try to do though in that in that section, and this comes from teaching British kids for all those years, when I would teach the Civil War to the British students, they would always want to try to understand the uh, political developments in the North during the war as being akin to the emergence of wartime socialism that they were familiar with in, um, in the case of 20th century Britain. So the idea that in the Great War, uh, Britain has to centralize and, and create a, a powerful um, state apparatus to pursue the, the total war on the Western Front. And so they always came to the Civil War thinking that, oh, this is what's happening in the United States. Um, but what I'll try to show in the book there is that the, the type of central power that emerges in the Civil War North is rather different than wartime socialism, um, that it retains very uh, important elements of decentralization, that um, nationalization of resources and the mobilization of, of them um, is not really the headline story. It's the uh, associations. It's the relationships between a growing federal state, but also an integrating a pr- private sector, for lack of a better word, what we would call a private sector today. So you're absolutely right to point to to currency and banking issues as a as a as a key example of one of the um, trans- transformations of the Civil War years. But it wasn't just that that you have a national currency and a National Banking Act for the first time. It's that what that National Banking Act does is federate uh, private banks that could be found throughout the the North, but in particular um, in that financial core of the Northeast clustered increasingly around Wall Street. So you have, by 1865, an integrated financial system but you have the uh, emergence or the birth of, of, pr- of private financial entities that will evolve into the great um, uh, powers in, in the politics and finance of the country in the Gilded Age and, and, and beyond. So I think to understand the, the type of America and its political economy that emerges after the war, you have to understand the very distinctive and decentralized way in which it mobilizes resource during the war.
0: Mm-hmm. yeah just uh on the 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 wall street note i I, I love this line where you, you wrote something like um uh, the the u s Civil War made wall street um, you know the epicenter of national finance um and I, I thought that, uh yeah just like this this other feature of um you know contemporary u s society, the power of wall street. Um, it actually has a lot of its origins um, in this moment of crisis. And you also have this lovely little bit of evidence. um, You know, uh, you talk about Bartleby the Scrivener in the 1850s, um, you know, going on these long uh, uh, alcohol-infused lunches, um, you know, uh, working on Wall Street. And then by the uh, the eighteen sixties, um you have the invention of the lunch counter um, in Wall Street, um, because these uh, you know Wall Street bankers and brokers are um, just so busy, um, you know that they uh, they can only go for lunch for uh, a few minutes at a time.
1: Yeah, no, that that's that, that's 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 absolutely right. And and the lunch counter is often said to be an invention there. And and don't forget also the 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 creation or the building the construction of 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 a new place to house all these transactions in in union war bonds and that's the new york stock exchange which is, is literally built um during the civil war itself so yeah no i think that the changes in in finance and political economy we, we you could throw the tariff in there is, is also an important um example are absolutely crucial um and and though you can see a precedence for them the the, the prehistory before eighteen sixty one, I mean, invariably, you can always see a precedent for a transformative change. It is that crucible of war, that crisis of the union that really that really produces the the profound change.
0: Okay, so let's move on to the next crisis. Uh, and that's the um, you know, like what people at the time called the world crisis, um you know, the crisis of uh, you know world War, Great Depression. Um, you know, FDR put it as uh, one crisis after another, and so like the thing that I would like for us to discuss is um, the U.S.'s response to this crisis. How does the um, uh, the U.S. respond to um, yeah this like global crisis, and how does its um, act- how did its actions um, shape the the republic itself?
1: Mm. You know, I, yeah. So I'm a 19th century guy, um, <laughs> and when I look at the 20th century, um, it, it it maybe looks a little bit different to me than it does to the 20th century people. But when when I, when I look at what happens um, in in this this world crisis, and I suppose when when we say that or when the contemporaries are saying that, they they mean in particular the the Great Depression and, and the Second World War. But but you might even expand it a little bit, right? To to bring in the 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 Great War, the First World War, and then the the that 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 volatile post-war period um, where the the Cold War lines are kind of being divided, and and until you get some kind of stabilization in the in the geopolitical order um, by mid-century, say after the Korean War or thereabouts. So what what you look at when you see that is wow, Um, the United States is all over the map in how it's trying to respond um, to this uh, series of of profound um, shocks and and crises. Um, But one could generalize about it. And and what strikes me as a 19th century guy is how the, uh, the impulse to insulate, to cocoon the United States from external pressures um, and external disarray, how that is really the overriding um, policy direction um, early on in the 1920s, and 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 in the case of the New Deal in the 1930s. So uh, things like immigration restriction, which goes right back, of course, um, into the days of the Know Nothing Party, but you never really have um, immigration restriction, at least the capacity to close the borders of the nation, the state doesn't have the power to do that, even when it wants to, Um, in the case of uh, Chinese exclusion in 1882, um, even when it wants to do it, it can't quite shut its borders off. It now has more state capacity and immigration is restricted, as you know, in the the 1920s. Uh, Tariffs are increased um uh the 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 trend toward um tariff reduction is reversed again in the in the 20s and then most famously when the when the depression hits um and the the tariff of 19 uh, of 1930 and then one could talk also about the the diplomacy of the period and the ne- neutrality acts the the attempt not not for full on isolation that's not what the United States is trying to do but the attempt to just insulate itself um from the contagion of of crisis and instability around the world. So you have all this going on and and then how I end that chapter is with how different America looks after nineteen forty five when it's come out the other end of this of this world crisis. And now it's a, a proponent of of free trade or at least of a, of a liberal economic order. it's It's exporting uh, capital. Um, it is slowly moving towards uh, reforming its migration policy. Um, the climax won't come um, until the 1960s, but there's important acts before uh, you get there. So it's a, it's a it's a complex trajectory and one that looks, I think, much different than the accounts I often hear of a, of a kind of inexorably rising America as the as the twentieth century unfolds. Mm-hmm.
0: Can, can you explain that trajectory? Uh I mean it's uh, I know it's 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 a complicated one that um you get through in the book, but uh like w- w- why does the United States um seem to look so different in 1945 than it does say in um you know 1924, or 1930 or 1935.
1: You know, I mean I th- I think that the 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 key developments for as important as um, you know, d- domestic, political and, and indeed ideological shifts um, within the kind of foreign policy establishment and, and, and indeed public opinion, those things are important. But, but I think that the key, the key driver here is, is external. It's the complete transformation of, of the international order. And to think how different um, uh, the world looks in um, 1945 than from how it looked um, in 1920, right after the the First uh, World War, I mean, the 1920s is is the apogee, isn't it, of of, uh, of European uh, colonialism? It's it's the sort of a climax of uh, of the 19th century in that sense. Um, but by 1945, you have a a colonial order that is clearly um, 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 on the way out; its days um, are numbered you have um uh, the the rapid decline of great britain and the british empire which it structured um the the global economy in the days of of victorian globalization and you have a sudden vacuum in terms of the the the, the financial power that will oversee this rapidly changing world order and then you have a an a series of foreign threats that in many ways um, their ultimate importance to the united states is how they um, uh, create and and um, foster a, a powerful potent uh, nationalism sometimes in a the- oppressive nationalism, particularly toward um, racial minorities at home. One thinks of the Japanese Americans um, who were interned during the war. But you have this powerful nationalism which feeds off of, of external threats. And, and the, the Soviet Union is almost custom designed. You know, it's almost engineered <laughs> to, to produce um, a, a, a unified, um, coherent American um, foreign policy response Um, which looks so different to me than American uh, foreign policy up to that point, and indeed looks so different from American foreign policy since the end of the Cold War as well. Um, So one of the points I make in the book about this uh, post-1945 period is, um, I mean, I'm no fan of American exceptionalism in the case of America looking exceptional for the rest of the world, but I do think that post-1945 America looks rather exceptional or at least different from American history um, over the long haul. It just seems so different from uh, 19th century America or indeed uh, 21st century America. And that difference to me is not about the political vocabulary and languages and the pursuit of rights of, of racial minorities. The difference is geopolitical how um, America is exporting power. You know, it it is a capital exporter after 1945. It, that's not the case in the 19th century. That's not the case today. It's a proponent of free trade. Again, rather different from what it looks like. And, of course, it's geopolitically ascendant. Um, and if we know one thing about geopolitical ascendance is that it is time limited. Um, it's not going to be around forever. All empires must fall. And um, so you see this peculiar set of conditions after 1945 in which America has a very unusual position in the world system.
0: Mm-hmm. Wonderful. And so uh, I, I want to think um, sort of um, broadly about um, the history of um, of crisis and of the United States more generally. Um, so um, you write that foreign powers are the most overlooked actors in American history um and i thought that was a really provocative uh line and uh um and uh, but i also think that there's um uh tons of truth in it and so i was hoping that you could um perhaps say a bit about a, a bit about why historians have overlooked foreign powers um and and just yeah but just more broadly why foreign powers matter so much
1: it it it, it you know i mean i'm glad I, i'm glad i provoked someone with that line um because <laughs> so much of you could think of uh, you know writing history is to say you know who whose perspective who haven't we talked much about and and that's the great thing about the profession as we've expanded the cast of characters completely upended um old narratives um but it's it is curious that um it, particularly in let's say historiography in the second half of the 20th century um when when you when you would read about how America fits in to, To broad global trends and to world history it would be a story mostly of its of it of of its rise how america um comes to become the the global hegemon that it is after 1945 um and 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 that was the context in which those historians were writing and perhaps it's not surprising that they were um shielded from or blinded to the the many ways in which foreign powers conditioned not only the rise of the United States, uh, uh, but I think also the the internal development uh, uh, of of the United States. So there's a lot of ways you can you can try to weave foreign powers um, into the into the story. Um, one one of the ways I do in the book is to just remind readers uh, of how contingent America's rise was and how important the actions of foreign powers were so you can go you start of course with the with the french alliance in 1778 i mean i I just don't see how the united states wins the war of independence without french uh support you could talk about the the role of indigenous peoples the role of indigenous peoples um both sometimes as collaborators of american continental expansion um but also importantly in, in the case of the comanche as uh, those who cleared the way, who cleared the way for American expansion by um, the destabilizing Mexican authority in in the borderlands, um, uh, and, and you can you can keep doing this right up into the into the twentieth century. So, and this is probably the the, the Britain in me. But but when you talk about the Second World War, the the role of the British Empire, the role of Britain withstanding the Blitz. Um, obviously, the role of the, the Soviet Union—I mean, the turning point of the Second World War—is is on the Eastern Front in in 1942 and and 43, um, and it's not the United States that is the the key player at the time. So, I think it's a helpful uh, a helpful reminder um, in in a day and age in which the power of the United States is diminishing, and in which it's more important than ever to be aware. Of the role of, of foreign states and and peoples in reshuffling uh, the geopolitical deck,
0: mm-hmm. and so we've been using the word crisis um, sort of as um, I would say like a almost a stable category in um, in all these um, uh, you know episodes or events, and so I'm I'm just wondering can we historicize the role of crisis like is like that is to say. Has the role of crisis changed for the united states
1: no it's it's a great it's a great question i mean you you know what I would first say in response to that is that you know as i um as I wrote the book and now looking back having having finished it a, a year or so ago i'd say that one of the 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 things I wish I knew more about and something that i wish um other scholars might might devote some attention to is 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 that very question how do we understand um moments of of crisis is there kind of a a logic or or a pattern to it not not that there would be a a a replicable pattern but the way in which um uh, crises and 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 shocks spread how they spread across national borders but also how they spread from One sector of a of a polity to another, and so I talk a little bit about in 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 a a pretty ill informed way. But I talk about how, for instance, financial crises um, 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 spread across units of the economy. You know, from commodity uh, price collapse to land prices to runs on banks, and then how that somehow spreads to. The political order, the political institutions and regime, and and indeed one can go further into uh, social relations, into social conflict, and ultimately into international crises. So I'm not answering your question. This is going to be the one I'm I'm dodging in the sense that it's a great question, and we haven't really thought about um, how these unexpected moments of change un- unfold. And and surely the the headline answer is that that there is no pattern, that um, it's understanding the contingent processes themselves. But I wonder, and I suspect that the more we get into it, the more we think about political change in this way, um, as unexpected shocks, as opposed to incremental development of institutions and ideas, that we might actually gain a little bit better and more sophisticated of an understanding of of what really happens when uh, when those tremors uh, start to shake the earth and uh, people uh, lose their balance and institutions collapse and uh, new new ones arise in their place.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I think that there are some differences. Um, you know, like. In Adam Tooze's most recent book on mm-hmm. you know, the financial crisis, um, he argues that like the the thing that defines the 2008 financial crisis was just the um, like incomprehensible interdependence, um, uh, yeah. which meant that like one crisis in a faraway part of the world um, was going to instantly affect um, you know uh, all these other parts of the world. It's it's like the the um, you know like the butterfly flapping mm-hmm. um, its wings, but like at a structural level uh and so um so i think that like that might be uh, um, uh, a thing that changes um uh in terms of this like longer history yes. of crisis
1: you you mean the, the the increased um integration of um of of the economic and political order exactly but, but, yeah but, but but isn't it a double edged sword and and maybe this is uh, this, um argument but it's a double edged sword in the sense that it no doubt accelerates the uh, spread of the contagion, um, but but that it also the, the it also the secret to containing the crisis can also lay in the integration um, of the political and, and economic entities that, um, that 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 are built to manage them. And so, the 19th century, I mean, y- y- you know you don't really have that sophisticated of business um, entities or political institutions to oversee um, and to regulate and to contain crisis. I mean, heck, the United States doesn't have a national bank after 1836. And, and even after the national banking act, it's, it's a loosely federated amalgam of, of private entities. So um, I, I would, I would say that what, 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 maybe, maybe this is your point that, Crises spread faster than than they used to, um, but maybe they are more easily contained. and And that's my that that's one of my points at the end of the book. And some people have agreed with it, some people have disagreed with it. But the the, the question I often get is, are are we in a crisis right now? And and it, and it sure looks like that, that. There's the elements of of crisis, uh, not least in in recent times, a constitutional political crisis. But what's striking to me is. Um, how the political and economic establishments have have contained the damage. You know, we, we haven't had one of these catastrophic spreads of of crises where the whole system um, implodes um, as it as it has in, in earlier moments of of history, and and perhaps that, that's a testament to the to the integrated structures of oversight um that were that were constructed in the 20th century and, and indeed in, in some instances in, in very recent times since since the end of the Cold War.
0: Mm-hmm. And I think that's really fascinating because uh the 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 thing that almost um you know sparked this book uh was you know these these almost um uh, I guess like crises in miniature um you know Brexit and uh twenty six the twenty sixteen election. Um but in terms of or taking like you know taking sort of a broader look at the contemporary moment. Um it certainly doesn't look like um you know uh like some of the crises. It doesn't look like the civil war for instance.
1: No. No. No, I think I think in 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 two ways it doesn't. I mean in the first regard is the 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 contagion um has has for the most part been contained. Um and I think the best example would be the 07-08 financial collapse um, as two shows, you, you have a, a catastrophe, right? I mean, on a, on a, on a scale approaching that of 1929, but, um, the, the effects of it, the effects of it, I think in the long term will loom rather large, but in the immediate term, um, they were contained and, and that's kind of been the headline, I think, of the, of the United States in the Trump years, um, again it might be changing who, who knows what what lies ahead but the but the but the, the 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 structures of the central state of the of the of the media the free press um uh, the civil service and so on the establishment has contained the damage i mean we we often the phrase went often these days is the guardrails, you know, the guardrails of democracy, of democratic government, have kept the vehicle um, on the road, even if it's sputtering and it's it's driving in a very unpredictable manner. So th- that's one way I think that the the our present day looks different from these uh, moments of of crisis I look at in the book. The other way is uh, I think just as important. And, and that is I mean we, we still live in a in a day of, of tax cuts uh, in a day in which um, the average citizen is is not really having to make any sacrifices um, on behalf of, of of the nation to achieve uh, its its goals power doesn't have to be mobilized in quick order uh, of course it's a disproportionate burden shared by those uh in the working classes who have seen their wages decline in relative terms particularly since the financial crash and one thanks to the members of our volunteer um, armed services who are are paying the ultimate sacrifice for the nation but for most people um you know the trains are running on time and everything's going pretty well in fact uh, for for many at least in the in the top quarter or so of the socioeconomic ladder, these are darn good times. So um, that looks very different. We, we, we're not mobilizing power in quick order. And once you do that, once you have to do that, once there's a trigger for that, I think that's when you see uh, compressed periods of change and transformation.
0: Well, I think that's a perfect place to leave our discussion of the book. What, is, what are you working on right now?
1: Right now, I am working on, I mean, at the very moment, I am working on a a collaborative project, the Cambridge History of America in the World, four volumes, Um, general editor Mark Bradley. um, I'm doing the 19th century volume uh, with Kristen Hoganson of the University of Illinois. we got 32 contributors writing just fantastic essays. That cover pretty much all aspects of uh, America's global engagements in the 19th century. A lot of smart people doing a lot of good stuff. We've got a great balance in the book of of senior established scholars and 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 younger rising scholars and and people from a range of, of, of demographic backgrounds, and also people from outside the United States, as well as people writing in. I think that's really important. And I do think that, that, that those scholars who look at America um, from the outside um, often have um, interesting, fresh things to say. So um, that, that's, that's what I'm doing, doing right now. And, and scholarship is all about collaboration. So this is a particularly satisfying project.
0: Well, as a Canadian who studies U.S. history, <laughs> I'm obviously self-interested. <laughs> uh, but I think that's, that, that, that sounds like an awesome project. And that sounds like a, a, yeah, like a, a, a great set of people um, to be working with. Um, Jay, I really want to thank you for speaking with me today.
1: Oh, thanks for having me. Absolute pleasure.
0: And the book is called A Nation Forged by Crisis, A New American History. The author is Jay Sexton. And you've been listening to New Books in History.